If we look together in Genesis, we're going to look to Genesis chapter 12. Last time I taught, we got there to verse 9, if you will. And let me just uh, quickly do a summary. Uh, in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, after Adam and Eve fell and the curse came because of sin, um, we remember that Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 was, as I said, the thesis of all of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the Lord God looks at the serpent and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this is the first promise of the gospel. Um, what many have called this is the proto first evangelion gospel, first good news. And so this is the first promise in scripture. And this promise is going to be the one that all other promises are built off of. This promise will be the one that all other promises are built off of. Remember, whenever uh, Jesus in, in, in Corinthians, Paul says, all the promises of God are yes and amen in him. Speaking of Jesus, right? Well, this proto-evangelion, this first gospel, if you will, in Genesis 3.15, is telling us of how there's going to be one who is born of a woman who will come and crush the head of this serpent. The great disturber of God's peace will be crushed by this one who is coming from this woman. Now, that's all we have in Genesis 3.15. We just have this promise that one's going to be born of a woman and he is going to crush the head of the, of the serpent. So throughout scripture, remember, now we're looking for the serpent crusher. We thought he may be with Noah, but uh, even though God was faithful in Noah, he was faithful to save Noah's family through the judgment that came upon the world, we recognize that, that Noah was not the serpent crusher because he disqualified himself with his own sin. And now we come to Abram. And after in this whole uh, process, we have seen how God has spread people out now. He sent them to the uttermost parts of the world, and they are now speaking a different language and separated. And so how is God going to redeem this that has been created because of sin? People speaking different languages spread out all over the world. How is he going to bring them back together? So in Genesis chapter 11, we find that he calls this one man out of the Ur of the Chaldeans named Abram. And he says in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, here's the promise I'm going to give you, Abram. He says, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to summarize it. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you a great nation. And I'm going to bless you. And those whom you bless will be blessed. And those whom you curse will be cursed. And the nations will be blessed through you. So a land, uh, a great nation, and a blessing, the Lord says, is coming to you. So that's the promises there given to Abram. Now, as I mentioned before, all the rest of the Old Testament really is kind of an outline of that. For the next, uh, through Genesis into Exodus, you'll see how God makes them a great nation, right? And then in Exodus, you'll all the way through Joshua, you'll see how God is going to give them a land. And then starting with Judges and really going all the way through the history of Israel, you'll see how God is going to bless them through a king. And so what we will see throughout Scripture is how God is going to fulfill this promise. So the first promise, God's going to bring about a serpent crusher, is starting to be defined all the more. And that serpent crusher is going to provide for his people a place, make them great, 
and they will be blessed through him, right? And so Abram, God gives that promise to Abram. And immediately we saw last week, so Abram went. The promise was made. Abram left the Ur of the Chaldeans, went to the land that God had promised. In the first part of chapter 12, he's told, here's where it'll be from this point to this point, from that point to that point, east, west, north, south. This will be your land. And in the midst of that land that God is promising to Abram now, there's a bunch of Canaanites. And we just saw where the Canaanites came from. And we just saw their iniquity as they were born from iniquity, if you will, with Ham. And so God has told Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. And that land is full of Canaanites. But not only that, God has told Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation. And guess what? Abram's wife, Sarah, Sarah at the time, it'll be Sarah later. I'm going to try to be proper here. Abram's wife, Sarah, is what? Barren. So not only is the land God promised to Abram full of Canaanites, but also his wife is barren. And so you can quickly see how this promise that he gives to Abram, there's some serious nature why about can this be fulfilled. What I want you to be reminded, some of them, some people call this the Gideon principle. If you know the story of Gideon in, in, in um, the book of Judges, you'll, you'll know it. There is so many places in Scripture, and God's M.O., if you will, his method of operation, is to get us to see over and over again the absolute impossibility of him carrying out what he's promised in man's power. Does that make sense? Remember what happened with Gideon. He says, I want you to go fight the Midianites. I want you to do this. And Gideon's like, I don't have any good men. I only got 30,000. The Lord said, you don't have 30,000. Cut them down. You know what I'm saying? And then he finally picks out 300. And how does the Lord say to pick them out? Let them go lap up water from the river and see how they lap it up and choose this kind from that. So he picks out 300. Gideon's sitting there thinking there's no way he can beat the Midianites because he's only got 30,000. And the Lord says, no, you only got 300. And what happens? They defeat the Midianites. The purpose in that is to demonstrate the fact that God is in control of this and what is impossible with man is possible with God. But not only that, you see it in Jericho. I mean, I can go on and on. Here's the, these ones who have been wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, and they're coming into Jericho to fight the great city of Jericho, and God says, here's how you're going to fight it. March around one time a day for six days and don't say a word. On the seventh day, march seven times. On the last one, scream and you'll win. Doesn't that sound crazy? But ultimately, God is demonstrating that he's the one who has all the power. And what's impossible for you is incredibly possible for him. And, and so he's the one that can accomplish this. Well, here he tells Abram, I'm going to give you a land. It's full of Canaanites. And I'm going to make you a great nation, even though you and your wife can't have any kids. And so you, this, you see then, becomes an issue of faith for Abram, an issue of faith. And so what we'll pick up for here in this second half of chapter 12 is how is Abram going to respond to God's promise when it seems like there is a delay? When it seems like there is a delay. And so God tells Abram to go into the land of Canaan. He goes in, he sees it all. And he's going to say, this is my land. It's full of Canaanites. But then immediately something happens. Does Abram think at this point, like I probably would, that it's about to happen. This is mine. Send them out, Lord. This is it. You've, you've told us. But that's not what happens. 
There's a delay to God's giving the promise to Abraham. There's a delay to his fulfillment. Now, before we go any, any further in this conversation, this probably strikes each and every one of us sensitively, right? Because surely we have prayed for something and we think the timing is urgent and God doesn't answer us right away. Surely there's this time in our own life when we have prayed for something and we think we need to know now, God, you need to fix this. And it's not fixed exactly in our time. And you've always heard the, the cliche, but it's true that God works in his time, not ours, right? But we see this even here in Abram, for he's told he's going to have a land. And he goes into the land and he sees the Canaanites and he thinks, now's the time, Lord, give it to me. But something happens in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe. Several times throughout Scripture, like in the book of Ruth, or later with Joseph and his brothers, right? What happens? There's a famine in the land. God demonstrates that your sustenance does not come from this place. It comes from me. And so ultimately, there's a famine in the land. So there's a delayed uh, fulfillment of the promise. The land is full of Canaanites, and now it's uninhabitable because we don't have any food. So Abram, instead of getting the land immediately like he may have thought he would, instead of God answering this immediately, Abram's now stuck with this dilemma that the land that he's been promised is full of Canaanites and it's uninhabitable for him. He can't even feed his family. So Abram gets up, as it says, and heads to Egypt. Now, as Abram goes into Egypt, there's going to become a test to him. Does he truly trust God and trust his promises. And let's see what happens. Abram goes to Egypt. The famine was severe. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a woman, beautiful in appearance. Now, guys, that's the way you start every conversation with your wife, okay? Just let me go ahead and level it out. I mean, when you go to ask something, you know what I'm saying? So, so my kids had this thing. My oldest son would do this thing with my grandparents. He would walk up to my mom and so he, she'd call her Nana. He'd be like, Nana, you are beautiful. Can I have an oatmeal cream pie? You know? <laughs> and, and I mean, that's how he did it every single time. And I had to teach him, yes, start with Nana, you're beautiful, but at least put a pause in there <laughs> before you ask for an oatmeal cream pie. You know what I'm saying? Don't put them there together. Abram is headed into Egypt, and he looks at his wife, and he says, You are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me. But they will let you live. Say you're my sister. Now, don't do that, fellas, whatever it is. <laughs> Remember, we are looking for the serpent crusher, right? We're looking for the one who's going to come and be qualified to crush the head of the serpent that has destroyed the peace of God. We're looking for that guy. And we didn't find him in Noah because as soon as the flood was over, Noah went, into, went in and got drunk and, did, and disqualified himself. Now you come to Abram. Is it Abram? Is Abram going to crush the serpent? You know what I'm saying? And immediately, what's the first story? Abram goes into Egypt and lies and gives his wife over. Now, his wife is precious. Why is his wife precious? Not just because she's his wife. Obviously, that's it. But she's precious because he's been given a promise. You're going to be a great nation, right? And that promise of being a great nation is dependent upon what? 
having children. That's what we call them. So having kids. So it's dependent upon having kids. And so now Abram is going into Egypt and lies, gives his wife into the house. He's going to give his wife into the house of Pharaoh, for goodness sake, just so he's protected. In this, what we see and what we talk about all the time is that sin ultimately is a lack of belief in the promises of God. Ultimately, sin is believing that we are smarter than God. I'm going to go into Egypt, and the only way I'm going to be protected. Abram loses really any notion that he's going to be safe. Now, I love this because I want to, I want to jump ahead to... to, to uh, because hopefully Abram will learn his lesson. By the way, this is not the only time Abram's going to lie about his wife being his, uh, being his sister. We'll get to the one later. But I want to jump to this because in Hebrews 11, it points this out. Abram goes in. Abram goes in. And Abram says when it's time to take Isaac up on the mountain, right? Y'all remember that? Abraham has Isaac. He goes up on the mountain. Abram is going to take a stake, a knife, and drive it through Isaac's heart on that mountain, right? Why? Hebrews 11 tells us, because he so believed the promise of God that God would bring Isaac back from the dead, right? Because God promised he's going to be a great nation. And so even if he did this, God was going to bring him back from the dead. Of course, thankfully, God stopped him and showed and demonstrated this statement of faith Hopefully, Abram learned his lesson from these moments because what happens here is the opposite. Abram is not believing God, not trusting in him, and he lies. And he sells his wife out to the Egyptians. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Quickly looking at the surface, Abram's probably thinking, this is a smart move. I sold my, I gave my wife into the house of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's like, she's beautiful. Well, she's my sister. Oh, okay, she's your sister. Instead of killing Abram like Abram thinks he's going to do, Pharaoh starts dumping a bunch of donkeys and animals and wealth on Abram. He's like, look at you. Thank you. You brought this beautiful woman here. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for this. And so we thank you, Abram. And Abram's probably going, that worked out. I got richer. Verse 17, there's a but. Y'all remember those buts in the Bible? But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. So Abram goes in and gets reprimanded by Pharaoh. In this moment, Pharaoh actually looks more righteous than Abram does, right? Why did you do this? Why did you do this to me? Pharaoh gets called onto the carpet for his unrighteousness from the wicked. I mean, uh, Abram gets called on the carpet from the wicked Pharaoh. Why did you do this to me? And Pharaoh, look at verse uh, 20. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. 
here. Abram goes into Egypt just to say what happened. Lies about his wife, uh, Sarah, says she's his sister, puts her in the house of Pharaoh because he likes her and she's beautiful. Pharaoh's like, thanks for the wife. Here's your dowry, if you will, and I'm going to give you all this stuff. And Abram's like, oh, shoo, I'm alive and I got a bunch of stuff. But in the midst of it, God says, Abram, you have acted unrighteously. And God punishes Pharaoh for this. Pharaoh comes back and says, why? And then Pharaoh sends Abram out with Sarai and all the stuff Pharaoh had given him. Now, just to kind of point out a couple things. Here we see that Pharaoh, his response falls way short of what it should have been. His response should have been one of trust. His response should have been one of dependence upon the Lord. In fact, you could even make an argument that he should not have left the land that God had shown him, even in the midst of famine, for the Lord God would have provided for him, as you'll see that same argument later for Ruth in the story with Naomi. But here, even in leaving, Abram doesn't believe the promises enough, and he goes and almost forfeits all of them by sending his wife into the house and giving her as a wife to Pharaoh. So we see Abram's response. God did not respond quickly enough for him to the promise. And Abram's response was wrong-headed. He tried to take matters into his own hands. He tried to figure out himself. And it became costly. There's consequences to sin. I want y'all to remember this. Because I, I try to explain this. Especially to our younger people. My kids and that age teenagers. We often think that sin only affects us. Right? We often think that this is just about me and my decision. But what we need to understand is that sin affects everybody around us. It affects generations after us. The decisions we make of unrighteousness and sinfulness will affect not only ourselves, but those closest to us and those around us. And probably every single person in this room can tell a story of how somebody else fell into unrighteousness or sin and what that meant for your life. And how you're having to live with that now. And you're having to deal with that. Abram's sin here not only put his wife in jeopardy, but the whole nation of Israel in jeopardy. Abram's sin put the generations after him in jeopardy. And so sin has great consequences. There's no instant gratification that is worthy enough to sin over that will put not only you, but your generations after you in turmoil and trouble. There's none. And so Abram does it here. He doesn't believe the promise, and now he's putting everything in jeopardy because of his sin. Not acting as an instrument of blessing also. Abram was told that you will be a blessing to the nations, right? Through you. Genesis 12, verse 3. He's told all the families of the earth shall be blessed through you. But now Abram goes to Egypt, which is the, the center of culture and everything at this point and he is not a blessing to Egypt he's a curse he's not being a blessing to the nations he is being a curse to them Abram is acting opposite of the promises of God not acting in line with the promises of God but in the midst of all that in the midst of all that God is still faithful it's amazing when we read the scriptures I, I, I love reading God's word because when you do it you see that even when 
people, even when men and women are unfaithful, God remains faithful. And the Bible doesn't hide the sins of his people, right? It would be better for you to read this text and go, let's look at Abraham as a great example for everything we do. And, and, and it would be better for us not to look at Abraham as selling his wife into slavery because he's one of our heroes, our forefathers. But the Bible's not interested in making Abraham into the perfect one to look to, right? The Bible's interested in telling the truth of who we are and what we are. And how in spite of our sinfulness, in spite of what we may do wrong, God is still faithful to carry out his promises over and over again. And he still uses what we mean for evil for good. Remember, that's exactly what, what uh, is said at the end of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 50, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph is speaking to his brothers. Uh, we know the story. The brothers, there's, there's 12 of them. Ten of them sell Joseph into slavery uh, and just hopefully never hear from him again. Tell their dad he's done, Jacob. He's over. He's dead. And, and then Joseph goes in and he's sold into slavery. And then he rises to power in Egypt, right? Becomes second in command in Egypt. Really, he's the administrator of Egypt. So everything goes through him. And his brothers end up there. Incredible story. We'll get to that soon. Don't worry. And so... We get this incredible story, and as his brothers look at this and say, how could this even happen? When, they're finally, when Joseph finally reveals himself, they're like, how is this even possible? You're alive, and not only you're alive, you're in charge of Egypt. How could this work out? What did Joseph say? This great line we should never forget. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God took what you did as evil. It is evil. It was wrong. You sold me into slavery. That was wrong. But God can still take our sinfulness and our terrible decisions and turn them into good. That's why Romans 8, 28 is so powerful, right? All things work together for the good of those who love him. Even our sinful actions still work together for the good of God's people and his promises. And so God, by the way, this is the same exact thing Peter's going to say in Acts chapter 2. This Jesus whom you crucified, right, you put, you put him to death, he is now alive. You made a ruling, and God has overruled your ruling. That's the same thing for us in so many ways. Even our sinful actions are not outside the care of God. Not outside his providence, not outside his hand. And God is going to make sure that his promises come true. His promises come true. So even when we mean it for evil, God can take what is done for evil and he can use it for good. He can use it for good. And so we see it here. Abram steps into Egypt. He lies about his wife. He gets her back and a whole bunch of stuff. Some herds and some goats and some donkeys. I mean, that's worth some money. He's got some more stuff. And now he's heading back to the promised land like I got my wife and a bunch of gear. You know what I mean? God has taken care of him even in spite of his sinfulness. God is watching over him even in spite of his sinfulness and making sure the plan is going to work out. He foreshadows even what's going to take place later really, as he goes into Egypt. As he goes into Egypt, you remember, uh, the people of God are going to end up in Egypt again. And God is going to plague Egypt again. And the people of God are going to leave Egypt. 
And they're going to leave stronger than ever because of what the Lord has done. Here you see God using that for good. And now Moses is, excuse me, Abram is headed back. So Abram went up from Egypt in chapter 13. He and his wife and all that he had and Lot, who's his nephew, with him into the Najeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock. Yeah, it worked out. Deal worked out for him. In silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel. He's back to the place. The house of God is what Bethel means. He's back to the place where he had built an altar before. And he had worshipped God where God had shown him this. So he's back there. To the place where his tent had been at the beginning. Between Bethel and Ai. To the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot who went with Abram also had flocks and herds and tents. So that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So here's Abram. He's got his family. He's got his nephew's family. They're marching back. they got a bunch of stuff. It's hard for them as herdsmen, as nomads, to find a place to settle where all their livestock can be taken care of. God has supplied all of their needs. He's given them everything they need to establish themselves. They can't find a place where all their livestock can come together and, and, and be together. And not only that, their guys, uh, Abram's fellas and, and, and Lot's fellas, were fighting over about which livestock's which, you know what I'm saying, and whose goats are bigger and whose cows look prettier. They were fighting over this, who had the blue ribbon at the state fair stuff. And so they're fighting over all of this stuff. So there's strife here. So the question is, we need to kind of separate. We need to move. We need to get out of here. And as we do that, as they do that, you see Abram says to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land in Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Now, understand what's happening in this separation. They're separating out. That sounds fine. They've been shown the land. Abram has shown it goes from here to here, north, south, east, west. This is the land to dwell. That's plenty big enough. But as Lot looks, what does he want? He sees the land in the east beyond the Jordan, beyond what God has shown him. And he says, that looks great. In fact, Lot's going to choose what looks best to the eyes. He said it's well watered. Well, we all need water, but then it goes even farther than that, further than that in the, in the description. It's like Eden. So Lot looks at it and he goes, man, if I'm choosing the best land, I'm choosing that spot. That spot is great. It's outside the land God had promised. It's to the farther to the east than it was, but man, it looks good. It's lush, it's nice, it's well watered. I'm going there for my stuff. Y'all start seeing what's happening a little bit. Lot looks and he chooses based upon his preference and his understanding of what will be best. He's looking for prosperity. 
He's looking for prosperity. And so he looks into that land, leaves Canaan that had been promised, goes east into this land, and that's where he settles in. He settles in in this place. It looks like the Garden of Eden itself, as it says, the Lord's Garden. He settles there in this place, well watered, like the garden, like the land of Egypt. By the way, the land of Egypt is not desert like we would think. Remember, right there along the Nile is some of the most plush land in all the world. The land of Goshen is what it will be called where the people of God will, will settle during the time of Joseph. And so what he's saying is, man, this looks best. Uh, in fact, Egypt at this time was called the breadbasket of the world. It's where so much was produced. If you notice, every time there's a famine in the land, where do people go to? They head toward Egypt. You know, they head because they, they've always got it. They're always well watered. They always have food. And so here it's saying this land in the east looked great a lot. He had just been to Egypt. He saw how great that was. And now he's coming here and he finds land that looks like Egypt. It looks like the garden of the Lord. It's well watered. Lot is choosing based upon prosperity sake. Abram's choosing based upon the promise of God. This is the land he's shown me. This is where we'll stay. This is where we'll stay. But notice what it says at the end of that. Lot chooses and he heads toward the east and he finds this city called Sodom and he pitches his tent. You got to be careful how you say that. He does that there, right outside of Sodom. And what does it say about the people of Sodom? These men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners of the Lord. Now, I believe this is ominous. I believe it's teaching us a lesson here even that while Lot chooses with his eyes and he's looking for the place that will fit him best with most prosperity, he puts himself too close to what? Wickedness. He wants what's best for him. He's going to get the prosperity. But even if it means compromising his own conscience and living toward wickedness, he'll still do that. He wants it because that looks good. He's looking for that prosperity, but it's putting him right next up to wickedness. Again, it's like the old saying, if you are asking the question in sin, how far is too far, you're asking the wrong question. If you're looking to know how far is too far in my life, how far is too far for me to go in sin, if you're asking that, you're asking the wrong question. It's like the old story of the man. I, I, I heard this from every preacher in the world, but I'll tell it to y'all tonight. Y'all may not have heard it. It's like the old story of the man who is the time of stage coaches, and he had coaches. He was a wealthy man, and his son was going to school every day, and so he had to ride a, a, a carriage to school. So he needed a driver for his son as he's sending him off to school, and he needed someone to, 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 to steer the coach. And so he had three guys come to the test, and, and the first guy comes, and he decided to take these guys on this cliff, this road that goes up a mountain, if you will. So on one side is the, the mountain wall, the cliff. On the other side, you fall off, right, and die. And so he takes him up, and the first guy goes up, and he's going right down the middle. He's going fast. He's taking the curves well. He wants to show off his skills. The second guy sees exactly what happens with the first guy. He's like, well, I can get better than that. And he takes off and he gets as close to the edge as he can, flying up the mountain road, just making sure I can drive this thing with the best of them, right? He's hitting it as fast as he can. 
telling the horses to keep rolling. The next guy tries to even come that close, even letting the wheel rub off the edge a little bit, just demonstrating how great of a driver he was. The fourth guy, it was four of them, the fourth guy comes up having seen all that, and he gets in the horse, and he goes as slow as he possibly can. And he hugs up against that cliff just as slow as he possibly can, and he gets to the top. It takes him a whole lot less, a whole lot more time to get up there. It takes him a whole lot more time to get there to the top where these other guys were flying and demonstrating their prowess. And the man looks at him and he says, who do you think he picks? The fourth guy. He said, I'm putting my son's life in your hands. The last thing I want you to do is get as close to the edge as you were getting. I want the person that takes it slow. In many ways, that's the way life should be for us, right? We oftentimes want to live on the edge and see what we can get away with, when in reality, we should be saying, how can I glorify God with this decision? Not how close can I get to sin. How can I glorify God? In reality, we should be going as slow as we can in life so as not to outthink God or play with the line or the edge at all. We're just looking to live righteously before him and honor him with our decisions. That's not what Lot does. Lot says, I want the prosperity even if it puts me in danger. Even if it puts me in a place that I could compromise myself. And at the end of verse uh, 13 there, at the end of that section, doesn't it kind of seem that the, the author here, Moses, as he's writing this, is leaving us on a little cliff not to, not to bring those two together? It's almost ominous, right? Lot chose the really nice place right up next to the really wicked people. He chose that spot. Now, it doesn't say what happens, but can't we tell what's going to happen? Do y'all know what's going to happen? What, what happens to Sodom? What happens to Gomorrah? What happens to Lot and his kids? He has to sell off his daughters trying to save people's lives. He's, his wife is going to be lost as she turns around. Y'all know what I'm talking about? We'll get there. Don't worry. But you can see what it costs us. Let's, let's just learn this lesson in life. Just because it looks glittery and shiny and can be prosperous for us, that's not how we as believers make our decisions. We make our decisions based upon the glory of God and what's best for us. Not based upon what looks the nicest. What, not based upon some prosperity model that the world offers up. Our lives are in God's hands and we give them over to him. And what's best for us is to be in God's place, not outside of God's place, in God's place, under his blessing. What's best for us is to be there, not outside of it. And Lot makes a decision and puts himself outside of it, but not Abram. Abram seemingly for a moment has learned his lesson. And listen to what God says. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes and look. From the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you, are, that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Y'all remember Abraham's offspring would be as the sands of the sea? This is this passage, right? Arise. Walk the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. God, again, reinforces his promise to Abram. Abram, I'm going to make your people so great you're not going to be able to count them. 
Abram, I'm going to give you every bit of this land. It is going to be yours. Abram is back in the promised land. He doesn't do what Lot does. He stays there. He knows where the blessing is. He knows what God has said. And God reinforces the promise. And God says, I'm going to do everything I promised you I'm going to do. Yes, your wife is barren. Yes, the Canaanites are here. And yes, it may not come in your timing, Abram, but it's coming. And I promise you I'm going to do it. God, in his graciousness to us, doesn't just make the promise one time. He reinforces it over and over and over again. And our lives are testimonies of God's promises being evident over and over and over again. Our lives are testimonies of God's blessings coming to us over and over and over again. And just the moment we think God has forgotten us, we recognize that God has demonstrated his love for us in everything over and over and over again. And so it is with Abram. Abram, this promise is yours. God is faithful and he's going to give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Lot's passage, little paragraph ends with, Lot moved to Sodom and the people of Sodom were wicked. Abram's passage ends with, Abram trusted the promises of God. God reinforced them and Abram worshiped. Abram worshiped. These two together these two chapters together are interesting, aren't they? We quickly see that Abram probably is not qualified to be the serpent crusher, but God's still going to use him. God's still going to work out his promises through him. And even in his sinfulness, God's going to take care to make sure what he has promised comes true. And then we see in Lot, we see one who doesn't stay close to the promises of God, doesn't stay under his blessing, and puts himself in danger. Abram stays and worships. He stays and worships. I want y'all to just think again for a minute as we close out about the cross. Because there's a lot of the promises of Scripture in the Old Testament that point us to the cross, isn't it? There's a lot. We, we, we get to the cross and we realize the cross is the ultimate. That weekend, the cross and the resurrection, that's the ultimate. We don't have a resurrection unless he dies, right? So the cross is it. And on the cross is where God is going to redeem his people. On the cross is where every single promise that God has made is going to be fulfilled. On the cross is where God himself, through his son, Jesus Christ, is going to crush the head of the serpent. It's on the cross. On the cross, as Genesis 3.15 says, the serpent will deal a bruise to his heel. He's going to deal a blow to, to, to this one who's coming. But the one who comes, the serpent crusher, while his heel may be bruised, the serpent's head will be crushed. On the cross, all the promises of God are fulfilled. Everything is fulfilled. But there's so many promises throughout here. There's so many stories and scenarios. There's so many things that have to take place. There's so many times where this story is seemingly hanging by a thread and people are trying to screw it up and, and they do dumb things. And Is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? In Genesis, you're going to read about all of those from, from here with Abram. You'll go to, to Jacob running around and leaving 
and being deceitful. You'll go to Judah, sleeping with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Oh, yeah, if you ain't worried about that, we'll get there. You go to all kind of crazy stuff that takes place. And you're sitting there going, how in the world, you know? Because when you get to the cross, we had to get there from somewhere, right? And then even on the cross, you have all kind of promises, like none of his bones will be broken. That's Psalm 22. That's like 800 years before you get to the cross. You get all of these promises there. Well, when you get to the cross, I don't believe that God the Father is sitting in heaven going, you know what? I told somebody a long time ago through David that his bones won't be broken. I sure do hope they don't break any of his bones. You know what? I said something about them giving him hyssop or vinegar instead of water to drink. I sure hope they offer him that. You don't see God up in heaven wringing his hands, hoping his promises come true, do you? No, in fact, that's exactly what Peter said. You meant this for evil. You're guilty for evil, but God has brought all of this about for good. And you make a ruling, God has overruled it. The comfort that brings to each and every one of us is this. There is nothing that happens outside of God's control. There's nothing that happens that's not for the good of his people. And that even sometimes, how hard that never may be, puts us in terrible circumstances. Even sometimes it puts us in bad places, right? Even sometimes we have to deal with difficult things. But we can still, in the midst of those difficult things, know that they have a purpose to bring about the greater good of God, not only in our life, but those around us. Those things may be tough, they may be difficult, but they do not, they're not purposeless. God has a purpose in them. And even in the toughness and even in the difficulty, even in the struggle with it, we can praise God that there's purpose. We can praise God that is bringing about his greater good. And so you see here with Abram and with Lot, you see how God is working out his promises. They make dumb decisions. They're responsible for those. At the same time, God is working out his promises to make sure we get to the cross. Because since Genesis chapter 3, there's no looking back. we got to get to the cross. In the Old Testament's the story of how we get there and God taking care of it. Don't do dumb stuff like Abram did. Be faithful. Trust in the promises of God. Because when we don't, it not only affects us, it affects those behind us. It affects those around us. Don't make decisions like Lot did, where you think what's best for you is the prosperity of this world, so you cozy up even to sin just so you can have the nice things. Stay in God's promises and His truth, for God is faithful to keep them. God is faithful to keep them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for this opportunity. You are good to us. Thank you for your word. Help each and every one of us to be faithful in all things. Help each and every one of us to not forget the promises. And help each and every one of us to look to our Savior who has fulfilled them all for us. We thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all so much. We'll see you all Sunday.